Welcome to the Conscious Living Podcast, conversations to educate, empower, and enlighten our world. An uplifting and inspiring series of conversations and talks with your host, Jackie Woodside. We are educating minds, empowering lives, and enlightening souls to create a world where love prevails. In this engaging podcast, we deliver exciting, positive, transformative talks and teachings designed to elevate your life. Now, let's join our host, Jackie Woodside, for this week's session. Hi, everybody. Jackie Woodside here with the Conscious Living Podcast, another exciting episode inside of which we educate, empower, and enlighten our world. And today, I'm going to be joined for that task of educating, enlightening, and empowering our world by just an extraordinary thought leader and visionary and an expert in this field of consciousness and raising consciousness in our world. April Seifert is a social cognitive psychologist. Say that 10 times fast before you get up in the morning. (laughs) Uh, An expert in her field, co-founder of an organization called Peak Minds, where she and her partner, business partner, help companies and individuals elevate their performance. And April, I will invite you to say a little bit more about that, but thank you so much. I'm so glad we got to meet. We, uh, April interviewed me for Best Year of Your Life uh, Summit, which was just a delightful experience for me. So you have such a rich, deep, and broad background. Just dive in there and tell us about Peak Minds and, and your work in general. Yeah, you bet. So first of all, I'm so thrilled to be here. It was great to connect with you with this uh, recent Best Year of Your Life Summit. And given the work that both of us do in the realm of life design and intentional living, I just knew that we needed to do more together. I know. This is great. This is the first of the second of many, I'm sure. Yay. Good. Okay. So background, um, I'm going to hit two things. I'm going to hit some, some personal experiences that I've had, and then I'll hit some stuff on the professional side. You know, uh, my backstory and how I got into both psychology and the work that I do today really was rooted in a couple of pretty pivotal personal experiences. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a small Midwestern town, um, very similar upbringing uh, that you know a lot of people who grow up in small towns have. Yeah. Uh, except when I was young, um, my dad was diagnosed with colon cancer. And at the time, you know, we didn't have the treatments and the, you know, preventive, you know, treatments that we have today. And after five years of battling colon cancer, my dad passed away. And, you know, it's interesting because, um, all of the things that you would expect to happen after losing a parent at that age or such a significant figure in your life at that age, those all happened, right? Like financially it was difficult and we had to pick up the pieces. There was grief and a lot of emotional pieces came along with that. But what I didn't expect was the real lesson in all of it that came decades later. You mentioned that I'm a psychologist. So, you know, decades later, I found myself in graduate school. I was in a doctoral program for social cognitive psych. We'll get into what the heck that is in a second. Uh, But, you know, I, I had been following the path that was really laid out for me. I had been following the path that I thought was the correct one for people to follow that you go to undergrad, you go to graduate school, 
once you're in a program like that, you become a professor, you go to work at a research one institution, you do all that work, like step, step, step. You just, you do the right thing. Right. And I was sitting at my desk and I had this moment of clarity and I can't explain where it came from, Mm -hmm. but I was sitting there writing a paper and I've got you probably are familiar with this stacks yeah. of journal articles and books all, all around me. Yeah. The place <laughs> looks like uh, looks like a bomb went off. And I sat there and I thought about all the things that I wish I was doing instead of what I was actually doing. Wow. You know, on the outside, I was killing it, right? You're getting a PhD. You're running multiple research studies that I was the primary researcher on. I was publishing. I ran a lab. I was, I was raising the next generation of researchers, you name it, right? She's killing it. And on the inside, I was thinking about, I've always, you know, wanted to run a marathon. I I've lived with side note, lived with multiple sclerosis for now 25 years. And this was a thing that I thought, oh my gosh, like people like me can't do this, but what if I could, but I was afraid to try. And I wanted to do public speaking. And I thought, oh my gosh, people like me, we don't use our voices in that way so publicly and and put ourselves out there. And I was going over all of these things in my mind, all of these like regrets really that I had in my mind. And I thought about my dad and I thought, what would, and this is, this is literally the question that just tipped my life on its side, completely changed my thinking forever. I thought, well, if my dad were here, what would my dad give to have these opportunities that I'm just wasting right now? Mm. What would he give to come back? Would he literally sit here and think, oh gosh, you know what? I can't run a marathon because what if I run it slowly and that's embarrassing? No, he would go do the thing because he didn't have that opportunity. Right. And it really sunk into me that the way that we live the way that we intentionally make decisions by design, not by default defines what the path truly can be for us rather than following that, following that default path that I was following. So, you know, these personal experiences really drove home the importance of how we live, how we choose to spend our time, who we choose to spend it with. And, uh, it was a moment that just changed my life forever. And I, I just could never go back after that point. Wow. And did you run the marathon? I did. I've actually (laughs) run, uh, a couple of full marathons, a whole bunch of half marathons, a bunch of 10 miles. Uh, it took a really long time. I'm the slowest runner you'll ever. Yeah. Yeah. But you're out there, you're doing it. So fun. Right. So I did finish my PhD program, uh, social cognitive psychology for those who are unfamiliar. If you start at the end, we all know what psychology is study of the mind, uh, the cognitive part. We study how we encode store use information. The social part means it's information about people and social settings. So I study things like how we interact with others, how social settings impact our behavior, our thoughts, our emotions. Um, We study things like social constructs, like gender and race and ethnicity, how those impact the way that we interact interpersonally, you know, all the big beefy stuff. Like how do we interact with other people? That's the stuff that social cognitive. That's what in my life design course, that's what I call context. What's the context that you're living in and the context defines your behavior. So much of it. Right. I mean, if you're not conscious of the context that you're in and consciously, as you say, choosing, designing, creating how you want to be in life, 
you know, if you're, if you're born and raised in a, you know, small rural, super red part of the country, that is going to go a long way to define your views and your beliefs vis-a-vis, -vis, yes. you know, being born in some progressive urban blue, you know, kind of part of the country. That's just a simple example, but we could drill that down into so many places. So I, I love that we're so much on the same page about this, that we're both life designers and have committed our lives to that. So what an expiring story. I, I you know, I'm, I'm also an athlete and uh, I play racquetball and basketball and I've gone to the national senior games and I'm still at almost 60 playing, uh, you know, playing basketball two, three times a week. So, uh, and I, it has never like occurred to me as one of those flash moments, gosh, I wish I could go run a marathon. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say that. So I do admire your tenacity and your grit for particularly with your diagnosis of MS going out there and just kicking it and kicking it and running marathons and 10 Ks. And that's impressive. You know, and what I wrote on the back of, you know, when you sign up for a race, they send you your number, right? They send you your bib that yeah, you pin yeah, to your yeah. shirt. Sure. I write the same thing on the back of my bib every single time. And I write this sentence. I write someday. I might not be able to do this. This chokes me up. Today yeah. is not that day. Oh my like God. I've faced with MS, I've just a little bit of additional personal context. I've been blind twice. I've been paralyzed more times than I can count. So many things have happened in the context of this unpredictable chronic condition. I actually go see my neurologist today, which is funny that we're <laughs> speaking about this today, but, um, you have to think about the situation that you're in right now. Like we all face uncertainty. We're all going to end up in, I mean, sorry to break it to you. Like we're all going to end up no. in the same position my dad was in, right? We all face uncertainty with regard to our health. I just know what part of my uncertainty is. It's yeah, MS, right. You have right? a little more clarity about yeah, your sure. uncertainty. About one part of it, but there's other uncertainty out there. Like anything could happen. Right? right. And so what's important about the work that we do and why I, I get on this soapbox and pound on the table and, and am so passionate about telling people about it is that take this seriously. You get one shot here in this version of this life. And it is so important that you use it well. So true, April, which, which leads me to such an important question, you know, because you can't design your life from the inside out. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a deep and sustaining relationship with yourself. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. You know, maybe some of our listeners are kind of new to this conversation of like design your life and what are you two talking about? And you seem all excited about it, but gosh, I don't even know myself. So, you know, let's start there. A lot of people say that, oh gosh, I just wish I knew myself better, which, you know, for you and I, I'm like, I don't even understand that, but I, I do remember it. I remember it back, you know, mm -hmm. earlier part of my life. So how does, how does one, perhaps the newer listener to this kind of a topic, how does one begin to cultivate a relationship with oneself? And then why does that matter anyway? Yeah. I'm going to start with an analogy. Imagine right. two people. So you've got one person who does not care about their car. They don't care <laughs> at all about their car. They drive maybe this, whatever. It was an afterthought. They just don't care. Yeah. They don't take care of it. They maybe don't wash it super often. Like it just is not important yeah. to them. How much time do they spend thinking about that vehicle? How much time do they spend detailing it and doing the preventive things to keep it running well? Yeah. Probably I'm thinking not of my uncle Mike's truck, which every time <laughs> I get in it, I just like want to obsessively go clean it, you know, because yes. there's layers of dust. Like, I don't think it's ever, ever been cleaned on the inside. Yeah. 
Yes. <laughs> so and yeah, then- there's no sense of connection to it. No thought about it. No attention being paid. No focus. Yeah. I get your point. Right. And then think about people who adore their car. They love it. What do they do? They wax it. They spend intimate time making sure that it's taken care of. What is that sound? Maybe I need to get that checked out. Yeah. Let's make sure it's running well. The engine sounds a little different. We better you know, do an oil change. And the bottom line to that analogy is that we take care of the things that we love mm. and cultivating a relationship with yourself where you love yourself first is one of the first steps to life design. You know, I, we, wow. we chatted before we uh, were setting up this podcast recording about just schools of thought that we follow in terms of life design. And I love the Stanford University Life Design Lab. They talk about life design in the same way that we talk about product design. Mm-hmm. So if you think about, you know, the iPhone or the Instant Pot and why they're such beloved consumer goods. Right. I have, because- I have one of each. Totally. Yeah. And there are blogs written about them and people adore them. And it's just, why is that? It's because they were created with the human centered design process, which starts with getting to know the user. Who Mm -hmm. is the user? What makes them tick? What are their goals and how can we help them achieve them? What are the struggles they have? What Mm -hmm. barriers do they need to overcome? What is the context that they live in and how does that impact them? So much of that centers on in the life design process, you, you are the user. So how do we, (laughs) yes, exactly. You are the one user. So how do we get to know you? How do we understand your goals and your struggles? How do we understand what it takes to support you as you move forward and get the right, um, design around who you truly are so that you can be successful, which might be very different than another you know, another person in similar circumstances, you're unique. And so let's get to know you. So, so great. And, and what, you know, what are your steps in, in your process to help people get to know you? Yeah. I actually did a podcast episode on, on my podcast about this because it's funny. My husband makes fun of me. He's like, you talk to yourself more often than anybody else I've ever seen. (laughs) And he's not wrong. And here's the thing about it. It's, it's a journey that I've been on for the last handful of years where I've started thinking about the way that I interact with myself and the way that I interact with other people who I love. So let's take my kids. For example, I have a daughter who is in kindergarten and I have a three-year-old daughter. How do I interact with them? And I'm going to give a few specific examples. So when my young daughters come up to me and they're just, they're hungry. They're tired. How do I respond to them when they're hungry or tired? Do I say, keep going. You haven't earned lunch yet. You didn't get enough done yet. You need to keep going. You need to go execute. You can eat later or you'll eat at dinner time. Don't gut it out. (laughs) Right. No, I say, oh my gosh, honey, sit down. I'll get you. I'll get you a sandwich. Like, oh my God, of course you're hungry. It's lunchtime. Like let's get you some soup or something to eat. We don't do that with ourselves. We don't take care of our own basic needs. We expect ourselves to keep going. Even when our basic human biology is saying, I need to eat. I need a break. I need some just space. I need to sleep. Let me do the basics. So that is like bare bones, 
how physically, what is the care and feeding you offer to yourself? And does it look similar to how you, what you would offer to another person that you love? Yeah. So that's one aspect that I ask people to think about. That's great. That's really great. Yeah. It's such a deep question that, you know, in the technological era and maybe before, I don't know, but we've become such human doings. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're constantly like, you know, I'm so busy and there's so much to do and we're inundated with, you know, media and information. And uh, it's just, it, it's, our world is so fast paced that I do think that sense of inward reflection of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who am I? What do I want? What do I need in this moment? Even as simple, basic things like, do I need a snack? You know, do I yes. need a snack? <laughs> Those are, those are pretty basic fundamental ways, but yeah, without being able to attend to yourself. So let, let, let me just ask you that. What's the cost of it? Because I think uh, certainly a lot of women and probably men as well, but we're both women and we're both moms and that comes to mind, you know, uh, for me, if you can't care for yourself, what is the cost of that? Not only in, in your own self, uh, interpersonal, uh, but your intrapersonal as well, uh, you know, it, interpersonal with other people and intrapersonal with yourself. How does that impact both your, your inner world and your outer relationships? There's so many ripple effects. Let's, let's right? keep going with my, my relationships with my daughters, right? Okay. What am I teaching them about what it means to be an adult woman? If I don't take care of myself, Mm -hmm. what are they learning about what it means to support themselves as an adult woman? If I'm not supporting myself, right. Also my co-founder in peak mind, Ashley Smith, she's a clinical psychologist. She says the, she has the best sentence. She's like, you know what? Unfortunately, the reality of it is that you are a human being constrained by biology, your basic <laughs> biological needs. They need to be taken care of. You are a very emotionally complex houseplant and you need care and feeding. And when you don't do that, your ability to show up and be present with people around you, to be in tune to their emotional landscape, to regulate your own emotions. Like I'm a cognitive psychologist at the core. Cognitive load is a real thing. And when we deplete, when we're angry, when we're tired, when we're hungry, any of those depleted states, cognitively, we just cannot, you can't remember, you can't execute, you can't be as strategic, you can't make decisions. That's the external intrapersonal. I love that you brought up the interpersonal, right? Let's keep going with my daughters. This is like a relationship thing, right? And there's some amazing parallels there. If you think about, is this how I would act to other people? Yeah. So again, imagine if my daughters came up to me and they said, I'm hungry or mom, I'm sad, or I'm really tired, or I'm afraid. And I need to talk about something. What if every time they came to me with a need, I dismiss them? Right. No, honey, I can't. No, go talk. No, just get, just stop. Like, no, just deal with it. I don't have time. Mm -hmm. Like, no. What would their relationship with me be? Would I feel safe? Would I feel trustworthy? Would I feel like someone they can, someone that they could depend on? Right. And then what would their relationship with themselves end up being totally with you being such a central part in their lives? Yes. You know, the message of, you know, you're not important. You don't matter to me. Exactly. Uh, wow. You're I mean, you can just you see the ripple effects of this, right? Think about when we do that to ourselves, I'm hungry. You can eat later. I'm really sad about that. Suck it up. Come on. I'm feeling tired. Keep going. You haven't gotten enough done yet. You didn't do this. Look at your list of things you need to do. 
are you a safe place for yourself? Do you trust yourself? Are you trustworthy? Do, have you shown yourself that you are an empathetic, compassionate person to be in relationship with? If you can't give that to yourself, it's really hard for you to show up in your life and design and be intentional and move forward. If you don't have a basic safe place to come back to, you live in your own mind, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. You want the other people around you to do that for you. Absolutely. Right. But if you think about the amount of time that you're interacting with your own mind versus interacting with those other people, create your own safe space, create your own empathetic place, create mm -hmm. your own self-compassion in order to support yourself, you live with yourself more than anybody else. And it's such a critically important relationship. Right. So say more about that. Create your own safe space. What do you, what do you mean exactly by that? That's such an important concept and goes right to, you know, I love this, how it marries with conscious living, you know, educate, empower, and enlighten our world. And I think about that creating a safe space is a way of, it's a form of self-empowerment. So speak more about that. Yeah. So we, um, this is so fun. This is like all coming full circle. I love it when that happens. So I mentioned a little bit, right? Like we're going to be responsive to our own biological needs. We're going to eat when we're hungry. We're going to make sure that we get enough sleep. We're going to rest. If we need to, we're going to give ourselves space. We need social interaction. We need engagement. We need leisure. We need just time off hugs, right? hugs and laughter yeah. and move our bodies. And yeah, those are all basic biological needs, yep. but also we have a set of emotional needs. We have a full expression of emotion that is perfectly natural and normal. It is normal to get angry. It's normal to feel jealous. It's normal to feel sad. It's normal to feel just sort of neutral, right? In addition to all the positive things. Yeah. And some of the work, this is where it's fun because it comes to, uh, full circle. Kristen Neff is another researcher who is part of the best year of your life summit. She has incredible work on the concept of self-compassion. And that sounds like a fluffy concept. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. I'm just going to like say nice things to myself. <laughs> it's actually very systematic and has been very systematically researched where when we are in a space where we need empathy, we yeah. need to feel held. We need to feel like we're safe in order to express emotions, um, move through them, thrive through them, be effective, even in the face of like incredible adversity, self-compassion is the thing that we can turn to. Mm -hmm. And the components of it are one, being mindful, acknowledging the situation you're in. I got negative feedback at work when I didn't expect it. So yeah. that's number one. Yeah. And it made me feel sad. It made me feel angry, whatever the case may is, yeah. maybe state the obvious, mm -hmm. like just acknowledge your situation. Yeah. So that is me there. Yes. Yes. Without judgment. Just yeah. these are the facts. I got negative feedback at work yeah. and I feel angry as a result. Yeah. So that's one, two, um, connect to a common humanity. In the consciousness work, we talk a ton about how interconnected we are. This is what we like to call the, of course, response. Okay. Of course you feel angry. Yeah. Anyone in a situation who received negative feedback that they weren't expecting, they would feel angry. You yeah. are not alone. There's nothing wrong with you because you felt angry. Of course you did. People feel angry in situations like that. So yeah. that's two common yeah. humanity. Yeah. And then three, 
offer yourself a kindness, but you know what? I'm here for you. You're going to do better next time. We're going to sit down and we're going to work on this. We're going to think about how we can do better next time. And what this does, you can see what this does. Life hands us lessons every single day. And whether we learn from them or not is very dependent on our ability to acknowledge the situation we're in and be open to change. It's mm-hmm. tough to be open to change when you're being punitive and um, punishing yourself for something. For sure. So that self-compassion helps us say, yeah, this is the situation. It's not toxic positivity. I'm not planning. I'm not pretending like this didn't happen. It absolutely did. Or pretending that I'm not upset about it. Yes, absolutely. And of course I'm upset. I'm not weak or handling it badly because I'm upset. I'm a human being with emotions who had an emotional response and that's okay. And you know what what I'm going to do? You know what happens when we allow ourselves to feel them? They pass. Yes, they do. They pass. Yes, they do. What they you do. resist persists, you know. Absolutely. It's subjugated uh, and transmuted. No, 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 it's fine. I shouldn't be so petty. Whatever. What do I care what she thinks? I got to get on with my day. And that anger gets, you know, gets covert in some other part of the body, you know, comes out when you come home, when the kids are hungry. And, you know, it's going to come out. And I love what you're saying about neutral self observation. Just don't judge it. Like, oh, wow, that really pisses me off. I really wish she didn't say that to me today. And just that allowing uh, that, you know, it's right there, quintessential. That is conscious living. Absolutely. Here's what happened. Here's how I feel about it. It's going to pass. And then you are going to go on and say uh, what to do about it. So you, you are continuing with that thought. Yeah. And that, you know, when my husband says you talk to yourself a lot, I literally say these things to myself. I'll say, you know what? I'm feeling really anxious about this upcoming thing that I need to deliver to a client. It's very large deliverable. I'm feeling really anxious about this. Well, of course you are. This is a huge, you know, project that you're working on. And I'm grateful to have the opportunity we're going to do our best at this, aren't we? We're going to get in there and we're going to deliver the best thing that we can. And we're going to trust our abilities. You can do this. Anybody would feel nervous right now, but here's what you're going to do moving forward. Self-compassion is this incredible tool that if you can make that your default response, if you can practice it, basketball player, this is like shooting free throws over and over again, over and over and over again. Yep. If you can develop that muscle memory where your knee jerk reaction in difficult situations is to acknowledge, connect to a common humanity and offer a kindness instead of just being penalizing to yourself. Yeah. You'd be amazed at how far you can go. So I want to go a little further with that. So what is the outcome? So, so let's say our listeners really get this right. And they go throughout the day and maybe even put a note in their, in their calendar, practice self-compassion today, you know, put in some structures, some reminders, what's the outcome? How, How does this benefit people? Why does it matter to be that, that awake, that aware, that conscious and that compassionate with yourself? There's so many, again, so many ripple effects from this. One is that it helps you develop. I'm sure people have heard of growth mindset, right? Like I'm not good at that yet or whatever. I I haven't gotten there yet. Um, This idea that we can get better and we can improve. Yeah. You can't improve at something that you're already perfect at. Just life just inherently involves failure, big and small, but we're going to fail. Yeah. 
this and allows you news, right because the more yes. you feel, the more you're actually moving and growing and getting toward your goal yeah you bet but you're not going to grow you're not ever going to have that opportunity think about me back in grad school right i don't i don't want to run cuz what if i don't do it perfectly what if my score isn't what it should be or mm-hmm. my time isn't what it should be yeah 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 right you're never going to put yourself in situations where you might fail if you feel that like that failure is the end all be all of who you are Right. You will put yourself in situations where you might fail if you feel like it's safe to fail. Mm. So your growth will be so much more if you can learn to support yourself empathetically. There is like, and people, the knee jerk reaction that I hear from people is no, I have to be hard on myself. Otherwise I, I won't oh. um, take it seriously. The research does not play that out. Right. It doesn't. Right. It puts people in a situation where they're afraid to fail and they don't try. They don't try. So that's, that's one. Right. Um, but when we think about, I guess, even more broadly, what this does, this gets into some of the more um, fundamental mindfulness pieces that, mm-hmm. you know, we uh, all, you know, talk about and think about uh, in our work, but it's training your mind to be more an observer of your emotions, of your thoughts. It puts you mm-hmm. in a good relationship with them that can be much more effective where you're not so wrapped up in them. Um, it also is, you've probably heard about the, you know, fight, flight, freeze, fawn, yeah. um, stress response. Yeah. This is another way of combating that fight or flight stress response. It's a okay. way of regulating your nervous system. It's, you know, when you think about we as human beings being interpersonal, social human beings, one thing we do for comfort is we go to each other for comfort. We go to each other to get that verbal comfort and feedback. And validation to feel feel seen, to feel validated. Yeah. And when we can't get that from another person, maybe there isn't someone there we can give that to ourselves. And so it's a way of just like biologically regulating your nervous system. It calms you down because you're getting that social connection in this case from yourself. So, so great. I love it. The benefits of this, you know, living consciously, living life by design, uh, developing self-compassion. You're really right. And I know we share this passion. I believe it's what will create a more just, loving, equitable world for everyone to come from this perspective of, of kind of a self, self-centered, but I don't mean that in a narcissistic way, but focused on the self, caring for the self, loving the self, being compassionate with the self, giving that, allowing that foundation to go forward and create your relationships with other people. I couldn't agree more. I mean, think about what it does when you connect to a common humanity. Right. April, of course you feel anxious in this situation. Anybody who is in that situation might feel anxious. What that cues in your mind is other people who are in a similar situation yeah. probably feel this way. Can I feel a level of compassion for them? Because I know how it feels. I know what it feels like to be afraid. I know what it feels like to not feel like I'm enough. I know what it feels like to pick apart everything that I said or did, I know what that feels like. And that compassion that we can develop for other people in humanity, Mm -hmm. that's what connects us, right? That's the whole basis for meta and like other types of 
meditation practices is how can we develop that loving kindness, that true compassion and empathy for other people. Mm -hmm. When you give that to yourself, you're literally practicing connecting yourself to other people that of course they're in that same situation too. You become more understanding and more empathetic when other people show you their, you know, weaker side. And I use the word weak and their vulnerability way. Yeah. Their vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Vulnerability is a superpower. (laughs) Yeah, it really is because there's such authenticity in it. Uh, and, and people connect with that. I I think, and, you know, this is interesting uh, along the gender lines also when, uh, I'll work with often male coaching clients and talk about like just giving the authentic apology or owning, you know, that the mistake is on me or, and it's very interesting to see along gender lines. I think that again, going back to context, I think that the context that men, boys and men particularly are raised in gives them maybe a little bit less permission uh, to bring forth that vulnerability. And, you know, I just, I want to keep bringing that into the space that I think that kind of authentic vulnerability creates a better world for all of us. So something that I'm, I'm glad that we're touching on in, in this, in this dialogue today. Yeah. I want to say one more thing about the gender piece, because it's a really yeah. important one. Yeah. You know, our, the roles that we play, the gender roles that sort of society assigns to us and tells us what we should and shouldn't do can and can't what's okay for us, you know, given the, the group that we're in, um, those go to what is acceptable emotionally for us to feel and express now for, I'm going to use two emotions. I'm going to use sadness and anger. Okay. It's more acceptable for men to express anger. It is more acceptable for women to express sadness. How many women do you know who get frustrated because when they get angry, they cry? Oh yeah, for sure. Because when they get angry, they move away from an emotion that has been shown to them by society to be unacceptable. And they move toward one that is acceptable. How many men, when they are feeling vulnerable, do you see who get angry? Angry. We move away from the emotion that society tells us is not okay to express. And we move toward the one that society tells us is, oh, is more acceptable. So, and when you think about it, like Google wheel of emotions, I want you to start practicing with the outer rings of that wheel of emotions. Like you start to see the nuance and the important nuance in our emotional expression. And you start to see just how limited we all are. And, you know, the importance of understanding gender, it's not just, you know, so women can be in an equitable place with men. Like, yes, that's part of it, but it is we all should feel able and accepted at expressing a full range of humanity and have that be okay. Because it's human. I don't want my humanity to be restricted to this end of the, you know, this spectrum of emotion. And I don't want my son's, uh, you know, uh, emotional expression to be limited to the opposite side. It's, It's exactly right. The full range of our human expression Yes. is what we want to be embracing and cultivating and gravitating toward. I'm glad we stumbled onto that, that piece of the topic. I think it's really, really important. And I know we've got lots of men who follow this podcast. So April, this is so, so awesome. Uh, I have so many more ideas and, and things that we can do together. But for now, I know our listeners are going to want to find you and follow you and perhaps even work with, with you at Peak Minds. So tell people a little bit about how to follow you, get in touch with you and, and work with you. 
Yeah. So I'm notoriously easy to find online. So you can Google <laughs> my name and I'm really easy to find, but if you go to peakmindpsychology.com, um, that's where you can find all of our work in particular. If you go to peakmindpsychology.com backslash quiz, This is a really neat place for you to start where what it'll do is take you through a quiz that will assess uh, two concepts. One is healthy selfishness and one is pathological altruism. This gets really into people who sort of over care for other people at their own detriment. You'll learn some really interesting things about those concepts and get some goodies that'll kind of help you um, support yourself better during those times when I mean, we just really might need it. So peakmindpsychology.com backslash quiz. Um, you can get all of that, uh, just that good content and that good support there. That's so, so great. What a unique offering. I love that you're delving into that topic because I, you know, I think a lot of us, again, the cultural context that we've been raised in or that we're living in of how we are supposed to be with what other people need. Uh, so we've gotten into some really, really good content. Uh, topics about that today. So thank you so, so much. It's a pleasure having you on the Conscious Living Podcast, April, and I look forward to the next time that we find another playground for us to play in. I'm absolutely thrilled. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone in the audience. And Jackie, thank you so much for having me. You bet. 